I want you to think with me for a second, especially from what you just sang. How good are we at rationalizing or excusing away Scripture that might apply to us? Are we good at that? Or thinking this really applies to somebody else, not to us? Or how often do we really not listen to Scripture? More than what we like to admit, don't we? Why don't you remember this verse this morning in Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We're good at drifting. And God doesn't want us drifting. Now, if you would, find the book of Malachi. Find Matthew and turn left. One book. And the reason I say this this morning is, this morning and this evening, if you want to come back, we're going to be in the Minor Prophets. And a lot of Christians ignore the Minor Prophets thinking, wait a minute, these only apply to Israel because mostly they're written to the nation of Israel. And so I don't need to go in those books because it really doesn't apply to me. But I remind you, as I did a few weeks ago, that if God included them in Scripture, then number one, they're inspired by God and they're profitable for something in our lives. And secondly, even though God deals a lot with sin in these books, a lot with Israel's sins, we will find very quickly that we're guilty of many of the same sins that Israel was guilty of. But ultimately what we look for is the hope we find in God. How does God deal with our sin? How do we turn from that sin? That's what you want to see. So I assume you found Malachi. It's written by Malachi. That's pretty easy, isn't it? And interesting enough, Malachi's name means my messenger, and God uses him to tell the messenger also that would come. We're not studying that this morning. You look at chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. In chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord's come, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. 400 years after this book, the forerunner would show up, John the Baptist, the messenger before the Messiah. And it's announced here. This book takes place about 100 years after the exile of the children of Israel of Babylon. They got back into the land after being in exile for 70 years. And if you write a, read a companion book, read Nehemiah. We won't go to Nehemiah this morning, but read that book. That'll kind of tell you what's going on in Malachi. But in the time they've been back in the land, they've gradually gone back to the sins that caused them to be sent to exile. And Malachi is going to address some of those. And he's going to use this theme... Will a man rob God? I'll give you a little better on that. Will a man give God less than what he deserves? Will you give God less than what he deserves? Now we're going to walk through the whole book this morning, hard to believe. And God makes seven statements and Israel comes back with seven questions on six different areas. So we kind of take a shotgun approach to different topics this morning. And I guarantee you, even if all six of the areas don't apply to you, at least one will. And now you want me to tell you which one, right? That's the Holy Spirit's job, not mine. Let's start with the first statement, verses 1 and 2. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, 
I have loved you, says the Lord. The problem we're having here is appreciating God's love. Did you pay, I just love how God works. Did you pay attention this morning how Dave read about the reckless, reckless love that God has? Does God love us, yes or no? Easy to say, isn't it? And yet, what's the question Israel asked right after that? Yet you say, how have you loved us? They were not appreciating God's love for them. Because if you read Nehemiah, things weren't going as well as they thought it should go. So does God really love us? And it's amazing. We say God loves us, but amazing how little we appreciate it. Look at God's answer here. He gives an answer to their question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. He's talking about Israel. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country, left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. How did he love them? He chose them, number one, and then he always demonstrated his protection of them from the nations around them. Has God done the same for us? He chose us to save us. And his protection is always there. So your first question to ask yourself this morning is, have I appreciated God's love? And how do I appreciate it? Or do I keep questioning it? Second problem is in honoring God. Verse 6, God makes the statement, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. His statement is, A son honors his father and a servant his master. So where's my honor, he's saying. Now, Look at two parts of their question they give, but you say, verse 6, Hey, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, how have we polluted you? How have we dishonored you? The center of the answer is in verse 14. Where God says this, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. How have they despised him? How have they not honored him? They haven't acted like he is a great king. They haven't acted like he is a great master. And now he's going to tell them some of the ways they have dishonored him and not acted like he's the great king. Back to verse 7. After they ask their question, how we despise your name, verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And we offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting of its name, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 13. 
You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. First of all, how are they acting like he was not a great king? They brought him less than the best. They didn't give him their best. They give him leftovers, things they could do without. Things that weren't to their benefit, they would be happy to give to God. Or they'd pull bait and switch. They'd promise God one thing and give him something else. Does God get your best? Or does everybody else get your best and God gets the leftovers? Verse 12 is interesting. Talking about the Lord's table, he says, You profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its fruit may be despised. And you say, what is he talking about there? Well, you remember when they brought their food for sacrifices, they brought their sacrifices, the priests got some of that to eat. That was how the priests were supplied with food. They didn't have jobs. This was their job. And so the priests are saying, the food the people are bringing isn't even good enough for us. It's polluted. Notice what they're not saying. They're not saying, oh, it's not good enough for God. What they're saying is it's not good enough for us. What happened was they made worship about them and not about God. Your worship this morning, was it about God or about you? Who did you really focus on? That's how they were dishonoring God, focusing on themselves. Verse 13, but you say... What a weariness this is. It's a weariness to keep doing what God wants. You mean we got to go to church again? We got to listen to that guy again, even though we didn't expect it this morning. We got stuck with him. We got to go to Bible school again. I got to read my Bible again. I got to pray again. What a weariness this is. It's amazing how we'll even fall into that. And look at this next phrase. And you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. You turn up your nose occasionally and kind of even mock it a little bit. Does that give honor to the great king that he is? Chapter 2 is really written to the priests, to the leaders, to the teachers. And he says, this is how you're dishonoring God as the great king. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you'll not listen, if you'll not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll send the curse upon you and I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you don't lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. 
What did the priests stop doing? Number one, they'd start stop teaching the whole counsel of God, all of it. They picked and choose what they wanted to preach, what would benefit them. But worse than that, you don't keep my ways. You're not following what I'm teaching you. You're not following what you're teaching. I remind you at first how easy it for us to kind of ignore what God says. In verse 7, he also says this, The people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. You go back to Nehemiah, and the people weren't seeking instruction from God. He's the great king. This is his great word. Why aren't we spending more time seeking instruction from it? Because we don't treat him like the great king. How are you doing it honoring God as the great king? Well, let's go to the third problem. Third problem is accepting who God has placed us with. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Here's the statement. Hasn't God created all of you? And hasn't God put you all together? That's what he's telling Israel. He's put you together as one people, and yet you treat each other like dirt. You're faithless to one another. You can't accept who God has placed you with. Has God placed you in this body? How are you treating each other? Are you accepting who God has placed you with? In Romans it says, accept one another as Christ accepted us for the glory of God. How are we treating each other? He's got a second thing you do in verse 13. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. The reminder was this. He told them, because you're faithless to one another, I'm not accepting your offering. So they just kept crying rather than changing the sin and treating each other better. How often do we do that? We know we're sinning, but we kind of ignore it and let it go. We had time this morning, we go to Corinthians and look at communion, where remember some were dying because they weren't treating each other properly at the Lord's table? And God said, turn it around. When you come for communion, you come together. And if you can't take care of your relationships, you're in trouble. Now this should be pretty obvious, shouldn't it? But verse 14, what's their question? But you say... Why does he not? Why doesn't God accept our offerings? They're slow to learn, just like we are, aren't they? So God says, let me give you one example of how you're not treating each other properly. Verse 14, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What's his first example of not treating each other properly? Their marriages were a mess. They thought nothing about divorcing their wives. 
And God said, the first place I put you in was your family, was your marriage relationship. And you can't even accept the person I put you in marriage with, the family I put you with. You can't even treat them right. What are we told in the New Testament? 1 Peter 3, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, means weaker in place of position, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Does God pay attention to our home life? Titus 2, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. God was seeking godly offspring. Do you understand the first place that you're demonstrating your godliness is not here, it's in the home with the people God has placed you with in your family? And are you treating them the way God wants you to treat them? Your true spirituality, people, does not show up here in the pews. You look real good this morning. You really do. The shirt's eh, but that's okay. Just kidding. AT&T, is that what it was, Ashley? Okay. But you know what? Your true godliness shows at home. Some of you have heard me say before, if, it, if this doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. And that's what God's telling them. Can you accept and treat the people I placed you with the way you should treat them? If not, you're not treating me the way I'm supposed to be treating. That's what God's saying. How are you doing with people? Fourth problem, we don't like how God's judging sin. Verse 17, here's the statement. You have wearied the Lord with your words. We are continual complainers, aren't we? We complain about everything, and yet you say, here's their question, how have we wearied him? We don't even pay attention how much we complain to God. Here's his answer, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. We continually telling God, how much are you letting those wicked people get away with everything? The nation's going down the tubes in sin, and God's not doing anything to them. But there's another question, or by asking, where's the God of justice? How come God's not taking care of all this sin? So God says, fine, here's the answer. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. What's he reminding them? Justice is coming. Be aware justice is coming, and in 400 years the forerunner will announce the Messiah is coming. But unfortunately, he doesn't stop there. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. 
I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. What's he reminding them? You're concerned about sin around you, the people that are sinning? You better be more concerned about your own sin first. Are you upset for your sin as are you upset for somebody else's sin? And most of the time we're not, are we? We're good at picking out other people's sins. Lousy at recognizing our own sins. And God says, I'll take care of sin. But the first person you better watch is yourself. Remember Jesus said the same thing? You come across somebody who has a problem, has a sin. And he said, before you help them with their sin, make sure you take the log or the beam out of your own eye so you can see clearly they help them with their little speck that's in theirs. As soon as you start seeing sin in others, the Holy Spirit should help you first see sin in yourself. You don't like God, how God is judging sin? See how God's going to discipline you if you're not taking care of your sin. Well, these are fun, aren't they? Well, you'll like five even more. Giving is the problem. Verse 6, God's statement, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. First statement, If I want to return to God the way I should, where will I find him? Right where he always is. He never moves. I don't have to look. He doesn't change his standards. He doesn't change what he believes. He doesn't change what he expects me to do. He's always right there all the time. We change constantly. But his statement will come back to his return to me. And I'll return to you. And so they ask in verse 6, but you say, verse 7, how shall we return? But God's not done yet with his statement. Verse 8, here's our phrase, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. Will a man give God less than what he deserves? The answer to that is, yeah, he will. But here's their question, same of ours, right? But you say, how have we robbed you? Their two questions are really two parts of the same thing. How shall we return? How shall we, how have we robbed you? And so God says, let me give you the answer to make you understand what's necessary. Verse 8, you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. What's his first answer? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. They weren't giving to God the way God had asked them to give. Stick something here in Malachi and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Because we're coming back. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute, he says put the tithe in the storehouse. We're not told in the New Testament to tithe. Give a tenth of what we have, and you are correct, you're not. But you also understand the concept of the tenth was before the law. 
Go back to Genesis, you find that concept before you ever find under the law. So what does God require of us now? Chapter 9, verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will he also reap bountifully. And I remind you, he's not talking about money. I don't care what your TV preacher is telling me, that you give to God and he'll give you all sorts of money back. That's not what he's saying here. But here's the requirement. Each must must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do I have to give 10%? No, I'm not under compulsion. But a cheerful giver is going to give in a different way, isn't he? And what does God give back? And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's what you reap bountifully. What do we rob God from? Luke 12, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Or how about this? Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Do I give God from my heart? Or just because I think I have to? 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may told of that which is truly life. Should we take the offering again? The deacons are going, yeah, 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 do it. How have we robbed you? You're not giving the way I've asked you to. Now, does God just want our money? Look over in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. Because remember, God already told them, I want you to return to me. That's the first thing he told them. I haven't moved. You're to return to me. Look at chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. We want to know, you know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What does God really want? Us. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. If God's got me, he's got my money. Return to me. We say, wait a minute, I am giving my 10%, so I must be okay, right? What did he tell the Pharisees in Matthew 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Are we robbing God of the priorities he asks us to do? The money is not his priority. Our heart is. Or what about this? In Ephesians, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Robbing God of time? 
Well, if you give God an hour and a half today, the rest of the day is yours to do what you want, right? That's what we think. Or how about this one? I'm the Lord, that's my name, my glory I give to no other. Are you robbing God of the glory he should have? The credit he should give for what's happening in your life? Or taking it for yourself? Will a man rob God? Will he give less to God than what he deserves? The answer is, yeah, we will. Go back to Malachi 3. One other point that God made here. He says, bring the full tide, verse 10, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I'll not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing till there's no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you, so it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine of the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You'll hear some teach that you're supposed to take your giving and put God to the test. That's not what God's saying here, because Jesus said you don't test God. What God's saying is, by not giving of yourselves and not giving to me, you rob me of my desire to prove to you and to others that I'm the blessing in your life, and thereby you can then be a blessing to others. So prove me, and let me prove myself to you. Well, verse 13, let's go to the sixth area. God makes a statement, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. That's his statement, but you say, of course, our question, how have we spoken against you? You have said it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? You've said it's vain to serve God. Now, if I ask you all this morning, is it a good thing to serve God? You're all going to say what? But then I'm going to ask question number two. So where are you serving? You can tell me it's a great thing to serve God, and I ask, where are you serving? And most of you aren't, a lot of you aren't serving, you're sitting. So is it great to serve God? Notice what he said. What's the profit over keeping his charge? And then he's going to go on and say this. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What are we saying? It's vain to serve God because the ones who aren't serving God, the evildoers, get everything they want. They don't have to give up their time. They don't have to give up their money. They don't have to give up their effort. It's great. I can't tell you how many people have told me, I really can't serve in that area. i got to kind of keep my time free to do something else. I'm going, what? That's too much commitment of my time. I, I don't want to be tied into that. You're saying exactly what they're saying here. I want to be free to do what I want to do, just like the ones who aren't serving God at all. And they seem to do all right. In fact, they seem to do better than Christians sometimes, Right? Then God gives the real answer. Pay attention to this, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. 
They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. See, we have temporal viewpoint. We think it's the time I want for myself now. And we forget, God says, in the end, you're going to see the distinction between the wicked and the righteous, between those who serve me and don't. That's going to come out in the end. You better look ahead to that. Will a man rob God? Will we give God less than what he deserves? Do we appreciate him for his love? Do we honor him as master and king? Do we accept the sovereignty of who he's placed with and wants us to work with? Do we understand how God's judging and wants us to deal with our sin first? Are we giving what God's asked? Do we think serving is great? Well, the minor prophets got nothing for us, do they? Will a man rob God? Let's pray. Father, we all have to admit this morning, we don't give you what you deserve. But rather than making excuses and rationalizing, we know you know our hearts. And so we trust your spirit will work in our hearts and our minds this morning and help us to face up to areas that we know we're not doing what we should do toward you. May you help us not just to stay the way we are, but even today to make some change to start demonstrating to ourselves and to others that we know who you are as the great king and that you are a king we want to serve. May your spirit continue to work in us through the week, even after we walk out of here, that we wouldn't just leave it here, but take it with us. Amen.